me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, and um, we are going to begin to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Romans 3, verse number 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I'd like to just read verse 20 again. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The title of the message this morning is No Defense Will Be Heard, You Are Guilty. No defense will be heard, you are guilty. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we do praise you that you are sovereign. We do praise you that you are righteous. We praise you, Father, that you are just. We praise you, Lord, that you are a God of truth. We praise you, Father, that there, there is no lie in you. And Father, I pray this morning that we will continue to understand and grow in our understanding that when you say something, it is true. There is no arguing with you. When you make a statement, it is a statement of truth. And Father, I pray that we will continue to understand that what you say about us is the truth about us. And Father, that we would cease our justifying our sin, that we would cease to rationalize our sin, that we would cease to blame our sin on someone else. There is no defense, Lord. There is no defense for our sin against you. You have declared us to be guilty of sin. We are guilty sinners, and there is nothing that we can say about that other than to simply agree. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to learn how to live each and every day, not making excuses for our sin. I pray this, Lord, in Christ's holy name. Amen. Again, the title of the message is, No Defense Will Be Heard, You Are Guilty. Um, I know we have many trials that go on in, in our culture and in, in our time, um, and usually the prosecuting uh, part of the trial, the prosecutor will bring um, all the evidence against the defendant, and then the defendant gets to defend himself. Just imagine what it would be like if the judge says, you don't get to say anything. You just sit there and be quiet. We've already made our decision. You don't get to defend yourself. And that's really what it's like when we come into God's court. And we need to remember that we are in God's court. And in God's court, everything is different. It's so much different than the human court. In God's court, God is the prosecutor. In God's court, God is the one who's the witness. He's bringing forth the evidence. In God's court, God is the jury. In God's court, God is the judge. God is the prosecutor. He's not going to lie. He's not going to leave out partial truths. He's not going to twist and manipulate the truth he is going to bring the truth and god is the witness he's not going to be wrong about what he sees about what he what he says happened he's not going to be wrong he's not going to leave certain things out there aren't certain things that he didn't see that he didn't know he knows it all it is all true and and when god as a jury looks at this he, he's not going to miss out on something he's not going to be manipulated by the evidence he is absolutely perfect he's absolutely true what he sees happening is what happens and when god is overseeing the court he's going to make sure that everything is done according to truth so when, when, when it comes time for the verdict that's it 
That's the verdict. There's no arguing with the verdict. You don't need to hear the defense side because he's got nothing to add. There's nothing that the defendant can add. The truth is there. Now we just listen to the verdict. And that's where we are in verses 19 through 20. We have been looking at this trial that has been taking place throughout verses 9 and 18. And now comes the time for the verdict. The trial stage of the criminal hearing ends with a verdict. Today we will look at, we will study six aspects of God's verdict concerning God's charge that are all under sin so that we can fully comprehend the seriousness of our guilty status. God is going to have a guilty verdict. It is going to be a guilty verdict. We are guilty of the charge of being under sin. But we're going to look at that guilty verdict in order to understand the seriousness of our guilty status. We are guilty and we need to understand just how serious it is to be guilty of the charge of being under sin. The first thing that we will look at, it's a little bit out of order, but is the guilty verdict. The verdict is a guilty verdict. And we see that at the end of verse 19 when Paul writes, all the world may be accountable to God. This word accountable. This word accountable means to be under judgment. It means to be liable to judgment. It means to be answerable to judgment. The word, the word conveys the state of an accused person who cannot reply at the trial initiated against him because he has exhausted all possibilities of refuting the charge against him and averting the condemnation and its consequences which will inevitably follow. If I'm brought to a trial because of a wrong that I have done, and if I have nothing to say in my defense because of the evidence brought against me is so accurate and so exhausted as to leave no possibility to refute the charge, then I am guilty. I am guilty. Now, you may have uh, one of our translations that we use that use the word guilty. I love the word guilty. I just think it describes better our condition than to be accountable to God. To be accountable to God seems to leave some room that maybe we might be able to figure something out. But there's nothing to figure out. We are guilty. We are guilty before God. The verdict has come down. We are guilty. So that is the verdict. First understand the verdict is a verdict of guilty. It's serious. That's serious. It's serious for God, the God of truth, the omniscient, eternal God, to look at you and say you are guilty. That is a very serious charge, that a very, a very serious status to live in, to live as guilty sinners. The second aspect of the verdict is that it is a devastating verdict. It is a devastating verdict, and when we understand just how devastating this verdict is, again, we will realize how serious it is to be under the status of being guilty. Now, one of the reasons we see this as being a, a devastating verdict is because of the word now, because of the word now. Now, now generally, and, and obviously kind of summarizes everything that has taken place in the court hearing. We've had this court hearing where the charge has been brought that all men are under sin. We've had the evidence come in um, talking about showing from God's word why we're all under sin. And, and now we have the verdict. So now is a conclusion to the, to the trial that we have been looking at. But let's not forget that the trial is actually the culmination of a point that Paul has been making 
since Romans chapter 1, verse number 18. This trial is a culmination of everything that Paul has been trying to say since Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Therefore, this verdict, this verdict decision of being guilty is a culmination of the point that Paul has been trying to make since Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So let's go back there to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Now, to really understand what Paul is saying in verse 18, we should go back to verse 16. So look there with me in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Literally, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's, Paul, it's God's power unto deliverance. It's God's power unto deliverance. Deliverance from what? Deliverance from the wrath of God. That is man's most serious need to be delivered from the wrath of God. And the gospel is the power of God to deliver you from God's wrath. And then he goes on to verse 17 and, and helps us to understand how it is that the gospel delivers us from the wrath of God. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And when we study this, and so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it this morning because we looked at it several months ago. In the gospel, the righteousness of God from faith is revealed to our faith. That's literally how that reads. The righteousness of God that comes from faith is revealed to our faith. When you preach the gospel, when you preach the gospel, you preach it in such a way that people realize that the only way to be made right with God is through faith. That concept that to be made right with God is through faith, is revealed to our faith, and we believe it. That's how we avert being under the wrath of God. That's how we are delivered from the wrath of God. We are made right with God through faith. And once we are made right with God, we are no longer under the wrath of God. As soon as we are made right in the eyes of God, we are delivered from God's wrath. So that concept of being made right with God by faith is extremely important. That's an extremely important concept. It's imperative that sinners realize that, that the only way to be made right with God is by faith. And the gospel reveals that truth. It reveals that truth to our faith. And then he goes on in verse 17. He says, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now that phrase, the righteous man shall live by faith, could mean that the righteous man will live day by day by faith. He's going to just continue to trust God day by day by faith. He's going to continue to grow in his faith day by day by day. And that is absolutely true. If we are Christians, if we have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if we have trusted his righteousness to be right with God, we are going to live every day by faith. We're never going to stop believing and we're going to continue to grow in that faith. But that's not really what Paul is saying. And let me explain, first of all, by again, reading that verse, literally how it is written. And the righteous by faith shall live. And the righteous by faith shall live. That's how it's literally written. The righteous by faith shall live. I want to make one other change. The word by. That same word in the very same verse, just above it, 
God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. It's, re, it's translated from in that phrase above it. The righteousness of God from faith. And so it should be the same in this last part of the verse. But the righteous from faith will live. But the righteous from faith will live. What Paul is saying here is the righteous from faith won't perish. They won't perish. That is absolutely true, is it not? That if we have the righteousness of God that comes from faith, we won't perish. And we realize that that verse comes from Habakkuk. If you go back to Habakkuk, and we did this many, many months ago, so we won't do it again today. But if we go back to Habakkuk, we understand that God has told Habakkuk that the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to punish the people of Israel. And Habakkuk is very concerned about the righteous in, 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 the, in, in the nation of Israel. He's very concerned about the faithful in the, in the nation of Israel. Are they too going to perish with everybody else? And that's when God tells Habakkuk, the righteous by faith will live. The righteous by faith will not perish. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that they won't lose their physical lives. I think when the Babylonians and the Syrians came in and attacked Israel for their disobedience, I'm sure there are some faithful that also died. But they don't perish. They don't perish under the wrath of God. And that's Paul's point in verse 17. Those who are righteous by faith will not perish. Will not perish. Why do we know that is true? Now we come to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do we know that those who've been made righteous by faith will not perish? Because we know that all of those who have not been made righteous by faith are under the wrath of God. If you are sitting here this morning and you have not trusted in the forgiveness of your sins to Christ's debt work, on, let me rephrase that. If you are sitting here this morning and you have not trusted the work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are under the wrath of God. If you are sitting here this morning and you have not trusted in the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to you and to be counted towards you so that you can be right with God, then you are under the wrath of God. You are not righteous in God's sight. The only way to be righteous in God's sight is to believe in Jesus Christ. The only way that God is going to look at you and see you as being a righteous person is to trust in Christ's righteousness. Now, that doesn't mean you are righteous. You're still a sinner, but God sees you as a righteous individual. He sees you like he sees his son. If you have not trusted in Christ, and if God does not see you as he sees his son, then you are still under the wrath of God. Why are you under the wrath of God? Because you are an unrighteous person. And for the rest of Romans chapter 1 and all of Romans chapter 2, and everything that we have studied in Romans chapter 3 is meant to show us that those who do not have the righteousness of Christ by faith are unrighteous and they're under sin. So when the verdict says you are guilty, that is a devastating verdict. Because you know what that means? If you are guilty, if you are a guilty sinner, you know what that means? You are still under the wrath of God. It is very serious for God to look at you and say you are guilty of your sin because if God looks at you and says you are guilty of sin, then you are under the wrath of God. 
There is nothing that is more devastating in all of life than to go through life under the wrath of God and then to enter into eternity under the wrath of God. So we begin to comprehend how serious this guilty status is. It means we're under the wrath of God. This guilty status is also serious because it's correct. It's correct. It's the truth. And we see that in the very next words that Paul uses in verse 19. Now, we know. We know. When Paul says, we know, he is making a reference to knowledge that is certain and complete. We know. It is certain. What has been presented is certain. What has been presented is complete. There is nothing more need to be said. All that is said is absolutely certain. We know. We know, Paul says. There is nothing more to be said. There is no doubting what has been said. Therefore, there is no need to hear from the defense. This is what happens when you enter into God's court. When you enter into God's court, you know everything that has been said is absolutely true. So again, that is an aspect of this this verdict. The verdict is you are guilty. That is very serious. The verdict is you are guilty and you're under the wrath of God. That is extremely devastating. The verdict is correct. It is absolutely true. You cannot argue with it. A fourth reason why this verdict is so serious It's a universal verdict. It's a universal verdict. It's a verdict upon all men. Remember the charge? All men, all Jews, all Greeks, all men are under sin. Nobody gets to escape this verdict. This verdict falls upon everyone. And we see that in the rest of verse 19 when Paul writes that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Whatever the law says, It speaks to those who are under the law. Now, when we're studying God's word and we see the word law, we have to make a decision. Is the writer, in this case, Paul, is he talking about the law of Moses or is he talking about the law of God? And one of the best ways to tell whether he's talking about the law of Moses or the law of God is when we look in the original language, do we see the definite article? If we see the definite article, then 99.9% of the time, We're talking about the law of Moses. And in this verse, in the original, the definite article is there. So we're definitely talking about the law of Moses. Whatever the law of Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Okay, Now, who is under the law of Moses? Obviously, the Jewish people. They're under the law of Moses. But I just said that this is a universal aspect of the charge. So how do I jump from the law referring to the Jewish people, to all mankind. Well, there's two ways that we can do that. There's an indirect way, and and many of the commentators, they take this indirect way. They indirectly take this first to refer to all mankind because they simply say, well, if every Jewish person that's ever lived up to the time that Paul writes has not been able to be obedient to the law, what hope do you think you have of not being able to be obedient to the law? The trend establishes the pattern, nobody's going to be obedient to the law. That's a legitimate argument, but I would rather have a more direct connection. How can I directly connect the law of Moses to all mankind? Because all mankind has not been given the law of Moses. 
The Gentiles have not been given the law of Moses. They don't have the law of Moses. How can they be under the law of Moses? Again, we come to a simple little preposition, the preposition under. The preposition under is literally in, in the law of Moses. Literally, this verse reads like this. Whatever the law, i.e. the law of Moses, says, it speaks to those who are in the law of Moses. Now, we have, I think, basically five translations that are used in this church. We have the NASB, we have the ESV, we have the King James or the New King James Version, and we have the NIV, and now we have the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. I don't know which one it was, but one of those five translations actually translates that word within. So one of you, two or three of you, you're looking at your Bibles and you're saying, that's what my Bible says, Pastor. It says in. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law. What is so What is so significant about that word in? That word in speaks of a close association with the influence of an object. What's the object here? It's the law of Moses. Those who have a close association with the influence of the law of Moses. You do not need to be a Gentile to have a close association with the influence of of the law of Moses. This is what Paul was teaching us back in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Let's go back there. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, again there, we're talking about the law of Moses. When the Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. They have a close association with the influence of the law. What influence of the law? The work of the law. All mankind has a close association with the work of the Mosaic law. What is the work of the Mosaic law? The work of the Mosaic law is to show you what is right and wrong The work of the Mosaic law is meant to cause you to feel guilty when you do what is wrong. And even though these Greeks did not have the Mosaic law, somehow the work of the law, what is guilty, what is right and wrong, and when I am guilty, when I am not, somehow that work is written on their hearts so they are in the law of Moses. They have experience, they have an association with the influence of the law of Moses. But how did that take place? It takes place because the law of Moses is a manifestation of the law of God. The law of God. Everyone is under the law of God. The law of God is written on our conscience. When we look at creation, we understand the eternal power of God and the divine attributes of God. And when we look at creation, God will write on our conscience that murder is wrong. God will write on our conscience that idolatry is wrong. God will write on our our conscience that adultery is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong. It's written on our conscience. So the work of the Mosaic law is done in our hearts because the law of God has put it upon us. Now we see the universal aspect of this guilty verdict. All are guilty because all have been affected by the law of God. All 
have been rendered guilty because their consciences have been informed by the law of God and they know what is right and what is wrong. You cannot say, I didn't know. You cannot say, well, wait a minute, time out. Hold off, don't give that verdict yet. I didn't know that. I didn't know that what I was doing was wrong. No, you can't say that. Because God's law says it is written on your heart. It is universal. This this verdict is extremely serious because it's a guilty verdict. Because it's devastating. It means we're under the wrath of God. It's correct. It is correct. God says it's true. And when God says it's true, we know it's true. We know we can't argue with God. And it is serious because it is universal. One more reason that it is serious. It is a serious verdict because it's indisputable. It's indisputable. We've already made that clear when we said that it's correct. But Paul just wants to make sure we understand. It's indisputable. Look what he says here in verse 19. So that every mouth may be closed. So that every mouth may be closed. The mouth has been closed. It's not allowed to be opened. And it's a passive tense verb. Something outside of us has closed our mouth. It's not as if we want to close our mouths. We want to speak. We want to say something. But something has closed our mouth. It has shut up our mouths. It has allowed us to be, to be saying nothing. We are silent. We cannot talk. We can't open our mouths. Some power beyond us has closed our mouths. And, and when we look at this, this condition of having our mouths closed, we ask ourselves two questions. Is man's silence the response to a divine inquiry? Has God asked a question and I have nothing to say? Or is man's silence a response to God's divine verdict? I don't believe man's silence is a response to a divine inquiry. What do I mean by a divine inquiry? Here's a possibility. Could God be saying, I've heard the evidence against you. Now before... You say, before I, I, I say what my verdict is, tell me what, give, give me your defense. Is that what's happening here? God is asking you to give a defense and, and you can't give any? Is, is God saying, um, you are guilty, but I'm going to give you one last chance to, 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 to give a defense for yourself? Is that what God is saying? Is God saying, why should I allow you into my heaven? That's how a lot of us, that's how I have always interpreted that passage. I've always interpreted that passage that what that means is when I get to heaven and I'm asked why I should get into heaven, I won't have nothing to say. I'll, I, I got no reason. No. This response is not a response to a divine inquiry. God is not asking us anything. God doesn't allow you to tell him why you should or should not be in heaven when you get to heaven. Because when you get to that point, if you have not trusted in the righteousness of Christ and you are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, God does not need to hear from you. You are guilty. You are guilty. This silence is the response to divine verdict. You are not even given a chance to show you have no defense. You have nothing to say. How serious is that? Nothing to say. How many times we want to defend ourselves. But here, there is nothing to say. God is not interested in our defense. 
I realize that in, in, in our culture, and in our, our world, that seems harsh. But that's the reality. I, I don't know how to make it any clearer. God does not want to hear your defense. He does not want to hear what you have to say about being innocent. He does not want to hear what your excuses are as to why you did what you did. He's not interested in hearing you rationalize your sin. He's not interested in hearing you justify your sin. He's not interested in hearing you blame your sin on somebody else. He does not want to hear about how you think your childhood has affected your sinful nature. He does not want to hear you use your environment to defend yourself. He does not want to hear us talk about how we sin because of some past drama or trauma. He does not care to hear us bring up all those psychological terms that are used to explain and to justify our behavior. We have become so efficient at rationalizing what we do wrong. We have become so efficient at justifying what we do wrong. We are so good at blaming somebody else. I see this all the time when I do any counseling between two individuals, whatever that relationship would be. When they talk to me about the relationship, I tell you at least more than 50% is talked about the other person. Sometimes 80%. Sometimes 90%. And it always starts out with what the other person has done. And then they'll always, they'll always come back and say, but, but I know I'm not perfect. And then they go right back to why they're not perfect because of all that the other person has done. Why are they coming for counseling? They want to see the other person change. I have never, ever, ever had somebody come in and say, Pastor, I am a sinner and I've got a big sin problem and I'm responding to situations in my life in sin. Please help me fix my sin problem. Number one, we're just not wired that way. So that's why you don't see it happen. And number two, you know, if that's your real attitude, you don't need a whole lot of counseling. If you come to church and you say, I've been a sinner this week. I'm a horrible, wicked sinner. I've responded to situations in sin. God, show me my sin. God, show me who you are. Show me your glory and captivate my heart and my soul with your glory that this next week I might not sin. You don't need counseling for that. You come here and you hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit will take the word of God and he will fulfill your request. That's how it's designed to happen we are so reluctant to just admit i am a sinner we always want to make excuses and it begins right when it comes to being justified with before god now we may get it right and be justified before god by faith alone in Christ alone and his righteousness alone, because we realize we are sinners and we can't argue it and so we come into the kingdom of god we are justified we are saved from our sins but then we continue to live our daily life falling back on defending our sin. You see, we have to go beyond recognizing I'm a sinner. There's no arguing it. I'm a sinner. I'm condemned. I'm under the wrath of God. I must believe in, the Je- in Jesus Christ to have my sins dealt with and cleansed in order to be right with God. We've got to go beyond that. 
And we've got to live every day recognizing our sin and calling it what it is. It is sin. I'm guilty of sin. How do I trust in God to overcome this sin? It is a very serious verdict because it is irrefutable. It is indisputable. Indisputable. No arguing with God. It is also a very serious verdict because it's lawful. It's lawful. And we see that here now in verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now just a little um, homework here. When we look at the law here, we're not talking about the Mosaic law. Why are we not talking about the Mosaic law? It's capitalized. Doesn't that mean it's the Mosaic law? It's not the Mosaic law because in the original language, there's no definite article. If there's no definite article, we're not talking about the Mosaic law. We're talking about the law of God. God's law is the law that oversees the law of Moses, the law of Christ. If you have been influenced by the law of Moses so that you know right and wrong, or you've been influenced by the law of Christ so that you know right or wrong, guess what? It's the law of God. So Paul's just making a generalization here. The law of God. Why does the law of God exist? Why does God have this law that we can see just in creation? And if you're fortunate enough to have the Word of God, you have it revealed to you in the Word of God. Why does He have this law? He gives us two reasons for this law in verse 20. One's a negative, one's a positive. The first reason is that to show that no flesh can be justified in His sight. God has given us a law so that we will understand no flesh, nobody in their own strength, Nobody can be justified in the eyes of God. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be not guilty. If this verdict had been justified, then the verdict would mean we're not guilty. But the verdict is not justified. The verdict is guilty. We would want the verdict to be justified. He's justified. He's innocent. But it doesn't say that. The verdict says we are guilty. And the law agrees with the verdict. The the verdict is based upon the law. What does the law say? The law says there is nothing man can do to be made right with God. Nothing you can do to be made right with God. That's the first thing that the law is meant to do. To show you that there's absolutely nothing you can do to be made right with God. Give up trying. Give up trying. Give up trying to be good enough to be made right with God. Because you can't. The law of God says you can't. Now, what's the second aspect of the law of God? For through the law, through the law of of God, comes the knowledge of sin. Not only does the law of God tell me I can't do nothing to be made right with God, the law of God tells me I am a sinner. I am a sinner. You see how the verdict is a lawful verdict? It is according to the law of God. Man's only hope was that God's law would would yet somehow help him to be made right with God. But Paul's last words are, there's no hope in the law. No hope in the law. The law is no hope of avoiding this verdict. The law establishes the verdict. Understand that? The law is no hope to being rendered innocent. The law is no hope to be right with God. The law establishes the verdict. You are guilty. 
No list of do's or don'ts. Ever contrived by man can make you right with God. No list of do's and don'ts has ever been contrived nor ever will be contrived that will make you right with God. It is foolish for the church to derive laws to make one right with God when God's own law cannot make one right with God. Do you see how foolish it is for popes and councils? Do you see how foolish it is to think Muhammad is going to come up with a way to be right with God? Do you see how foolish it is to trust in John Smith? To trust in the Watchtower? To trust in Mary Baker Eddy? If God's own law, God himself, did not design a law that would enable you to be right with God, how can any other law ever be designed to make you right with God? It is so foolish and it is so sad to think that man thinks he's going to come up with a law that will make one right with God, that will make one innocent with God. The law verdict is according to God's law. Do not listen to man who tells you that if you do this or you do that, you can be right with God. Or that if you do this or that you do that, it'll help get you closer to being right with God. It is a lie. It is a lie. The truth is there is nothing, nothing given to man that he can ever do to be made right with God. All these other religions, these religions that are based upon human achievement, there is no human achievement that will ever make you right with God. You are guilty according to God's law. God's law says you are guilty. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican reveals this principle. The publican was considered to be justified because the law had revealed his sin to him, that he was filthy and that he needed the mercy of God and that without it he had no hope. Whereas the Pharisee looked at the law as a means to be cleansed and justified in the sight of God. That, par- that parable of, of the Pharisee and, and the publican, that Pharisee, he was looking at the law as a means to be made right with God. And he wasn't right with God. It was the one that didn't look at the law as the means to be right with God. It was the one who looked at the law and saw how sinful he was. And when he realized how sinful he was, he turned to the mercy of God and he pled, be merciful upon me, I am a sinner. He was the one that ended up being right with God because he used the law appropriately to see how sinful he was, not as a means to be made right with God. When Jesus ran into that rich young ruler, it was the same thing. The rich young ruler was depending upon the law to be made right with God. And, and, and Jesus said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for this rich young ruler, depending upon the law of God, to be made right with me. You cannot be made right with God by the law. The law cannot wash away your sin any more than a mirror can wash away the dirt on your face. You see how foolish it is to depend upon the law? When you look at a mirror, and the mirror says you have, shows you got dirt on your face, do, do you then grab that mirror and try to wash the dirt away? The mirror is meant to show you you are dirty. The law is meant to show you you are a sinner. You are dirty. It is just as foolish to take a mirror and try to wash the dirt off of my face that has been revealed to me through that mirror. It's just as foolish to do that as it is to take the law and somehow think that with that law, I'm going to cleanse myself of my sin. 
That law shows me that my sin is so bad that I have no hope to ever be made right with God. There is nothing I can do to be made right with God. And it causes me to have a broken and contrite heart. My sin has offended a holy God. And I'm under the wrath of God. And there's nothing that I can do. How am I ever going to be clean? How am I ever going to be cleansed? And if God has taken you that far, and He's caused you to see that much of His truth, He will not stop there. He will take you to the cross and He will show you that you can be cleansed. You can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And before we enter into communion, where we take a cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ, it would do us good to stop and think, what do we mean when we say, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Does it mean that I need to have a cup of the blood, the liquid blood of Jesus, and pour it on me and, and wash away my sins? Does it mean that, that I'm trusting in that, 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 that component of blood in Jesus? No, that's not what it means. The Bible clearly teaches us that life is in the blood. When we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. What we are singing is what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the life of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the life of Jesus. Nothing but the perfect life of Jesus that went to the cross and died for my sins. Nothing but the life of Jesus. Nothing but the death of Jesus. Nothing but the righteousness of Jesus. I need the person of Jesus. I need the life of Jesus to be perfect and to go to the cross and die in my place. I need God to raise up Jesus out of the dead and declare him to be a sacrifice that satisfied his law, that satisfied his justice that enabled him to be able to forgive my sin and still be righteous. I need Jesus Christ. I need his perfect life. Because when I believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that removes my, my guilt. I, my, my guilt is removed, but I'm still not made right with God. I'm still a sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner, but I'm still a sinner. I may not be under the wrath of God, but I can't be in God's presence because I'm still a sinner. We need so much more than to just be forgiven. We still need to be made right with God. And you cannot be made right with God apart from the perfect righteousness of Christ. We need the life of Christ. We need His righteousness. So when I believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I'm also believing in his righteousness to make me right before God. I am trusting that just as God took my sin, put it on his son, treated his son like the sinner that I am, even though he wasn't a sinner, I am trusting just as God took my sin and put it on his son, so God will also take his son's righteousness and he will put it upon me. And he will treat me as if I am righteous, even though I am not. 
you look at that mirror of the law of God and it shows you there's nothing you can do to be made right with God. It shows you that you are a guilty sinner. The verdict is you are guilty. It's a devastating verdict because it means you are under the wrath of God. It is an accurate verdict. It is according to God's truth. It is a universal verdict. Nobody is going to escape it. Don't think that you are the exception, that somehow I can still trust in man's ways. I, you don't understand man's ways like I do. I can still trust in man's ways. No, it's universal. You are guilty. It is indisputable. You can't argue against it, and it is absolutely lawful. There is one hope. It's not in the law. One hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. For apart from the law, the righteousness of God that you need is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. To you, Almighty God, we give all the thanks we can possibly muster up, Lord, in our hearts. We understand, Father, that there is no hope for us at all of ever being forgiven of our sin, of ever being made right with you in and of ourselves alone. There's nothing in us, Lord, no part of us. It is only when you regenerate us, it is only when you renew the spirit of our mind to cause us to understand the depths of our depravity and to cause us to understand the seriousness of being guilty before you and the hopelessness of being guilty before you. It is only when you reveal those truths to us and it's only when you reveal to us that our hope is in Christ Our hope is in Jesus. It's only when you do that work and you alone do it in spite of who we are. You do it not because of any goodness in us. You do it because of the kind intention of your will. You show us these truths. And when you show us these truths and you open up our hearts to these truths, we then trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning for our salvation, almighty God. In Christ's holy name.